some of my exercise routine from uh, running to biking, running something I did long distance running for many, many years, and I've switched this summer to biking. And even though as a kid I learned how to ride a bike, and it's not something you forget, there are some things about biking that are a little bit different as you ride more on the road. And a couple things I had to learn was um, you don't take a drink of water when you're about to hit the brakes and you're coming up behind a car. That was something I had to learn, you know. Um, I had to learn how to fall. Obviously, I'm not too good at it, you know. I've got a few war wounds to show for that. Um, I had to learn how to ride in a group of riders. We have a group of guys that go out on Saturday mornings and ride, and I've had to learn how to do that. Um, and much of riding around here is very different than where I rode when I was a kid. I grew up in Maryland, and Maryland's fairly flat. There's not a lot of hills in Maryland, but um, you can't go anywhere around here without finding hills. It's basically you're going up down another, and there's a little bit of flat spot in the middle, barely, if you can find any. And so one of the first things that you have to learn how to do around here is how to ride downhill. And, and i got to tell you, the first time one of our, the, the guys that I ride with, Glenn Moeller, took me on this hill... Um, and he's hurling down this hill with complete, utter abandon. And, and I'm squeezing the brakes, holding on for dear life, hoping I don't end up over the top of the handlebars, wondering if I'm going to do a face plant on the pavement, and all I've got is this little piece of metal and this plastic thing on my head, you know, protecting me. That's it, you know. Um, but over time, as I did it more and more often, then I got more comfortable riding downhill, not, not grabbing onto the brakes, even, you know, uh, crouch down so you reduce the wind resistance and go a little bit faster. And I thought I had, thought I had accomplished this until yesterday they took me on a steep hill with a curve. And I realized I'm all back to the square one and fear just gripped my heart. And I'm like, oh no, how am I going to go around this curve and not wipe out in some guy's yard or become part of the pavement? What's it going to look like? Um, but I've had to face fears that pop up over and over again with this new experience. And earlier this summer, Bill talked about the fears that we have to navigate. And two weeks ago, I talked to you about fears that show up, and I, I had to write those fears down. I, I was just kind of wondering, how are you doing with those fears that I asked you to write down? How are you doing with fears? Maybe some of you um, started, a new, um, started a new class, started with new teachers. Maybe some of you started a new school. Um, maybe some of you started in a new job or, or a new relationship. We talked about the fears that are associated with that. Maybe there's some fears about your job security. Maybe there's some fears about a relationship or about your marriage or even how your kids will turn out. There's all kinds of fears that show up in our hearts and show up in our lives. We talked about how we navigate those fears. And this morning as we continue in our series entitled Follow, I want us to talk about and look at what God has to say about navigating these fears. Um, because God doesn't say these fears will not exist. He doesn't say these fears will not exist. But he gives us some instruction about what to do with these fears. And I believe as we tackle these fears the way God talks about tackling them, that it can change our outlook in life over time. As I mentioned last week, some of the ideas from this message series I've taken from a series by Andy Stanley with the same title, Follow, that's given me some direction for this. And last week we looked at Jesus' instruction to, his, to the group of people that were around him that he started to talk to, and his instructions were this, follow me, follow me. Over and over again he said, follow me. And we talked about the fact that Jesus had this reputation and he had this unique canny ability to be extraordinarily comfortable with people who were very different than he was. Very different with he, than he was. People who were not anything like him. Jesus didn't hang out with the local rabbi's club, you know, or the rabbi. You never read about Jesus with other rabbis, but that's what he was. 
We saw last week that Jesus was with the tax collectors. Jesus was with the sinners. Jesus was with people who were he was least likely to be seen with. Those are the people he chose to spend time. And he was most comfortable with people who were not like him, people who were different. And they were comfortable with him. People not like Jesus were comfortable with Jesus. People not like Jesus were comfortable with Jesus. And I ask you this question, and I challenge you to think about this during the week. Am I following Jesus? Am I following Jesus? And ask yourself that question over and over again. And as we talked about that question, there's two criteria that I highlighted. I highlighted four, and if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go online and listen, but just want to highlight two of them. One of the criteria is you don't have to be a good person to follow Jesus because Jesus invited anybody to follow him. Actually, the reality is if you are not perfect and you know it, you're actually very qualified to be a follower of Jesus because Jesus said to those who thought they did not need him, he sent them away. And to those that recognized that they needed Jesus, he said to them, come and follow me. And the second requirement that, that exists is to follow Jesus is you don't have to believe everything Jesus taught right away. Everything Jesus taught right away. It's not uncommon for me to talk to individuals about Jesus and for them to say, well, you know, I just can't buy all that stuff. I can't buy everything that's here. I can't believe all that stuff. Jesus never said, you have to believe all this and accept all of this to follow me. He didn't say that. He said to people who didn't believe all of it, who couldn't buy into all of it, follow me. Just come and follow me. You know, his disciples at the first hint of trouble, the people that were following him, they did what? They ran and hid. They didn't follow Jesus. And it wasn't until after he died and rose again that they started to figure out and understand and believe some of the things that Jesus said. And so today as we continue in our series entitled Follow, I want us to ask this, I want us to answer this question. What's the payoff? What's the payoff? What's the benefit of following Jesus? What's the end result? I mean, you could put it this way. What am I going to get out of it? Because the truth is, if you decide to follow Jesus um, and the course of your life, he's going to ask you to take some more steps. And that song we just sang about, he's going to invite you to surrender your life to him. And you're going to have a decision that you'll have to make. But what I truly believe is that if you do make the decision to follow him, and if you do make the decision to surrender your life to him, that down the road you're going to eventually look back and say that was the best decision I ever made in my life. You know, as people think about following Jesus, there's a variety of benefits that come to mind. Some people think that if they follow Jesus, their life is going to get better. Their life is going to get better. And I would suggest to you that some things about their lives will get better. For instance, if you follow Jesus... When people wrong you, you'll probably be able to forgive them a little bit easier. Um, not necessarily quickly, but easier. If you follow Jesus, you'll probably be able to love others in a very deep, meaningful way. If you follow Jesus, um, it's, it's likely that you'll be more gracious. There's a good possibility you'll worry less. So will you become a better person if you follow Jesus? I think likely you will. But nowhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, does it say, does Jesus say, follow me and I will make you a better person? It doesn't say that anywhere. Another reason people follow Jesus is because they think it will guarantee them heaven. It will guarantee them heaven. But the truth is, nowhere in the Gospels does it say, follow me 
and you will go to heaven. Doesn't say it anywhere. Doesn't say you've got to follow Jesus and do what he says and, and everything he says, and then you'll get... Doesn't say that anywhere. As a matter of fact, there's a story about a guy who was in trouble. He had been a lifetime criminal, and he was finally getting his just reward for being a criminal. He was being hung on a cross. He was being put to death for his crimes. And when he was hanging on the cross, he said to Jesus at the last possible minute, would you take me to heaven with you? And Jesus said, sure, you can go to heaven with me. And you're like, wait a minute. He didn't follow Jesus. He didn't walk with Jesus. He didn't change his life. Now, I wouldn't suggest following his plan of attack because none of us know how many days we have or when our lives will come to an end and, and try to invite Jesus at the last possible moment. But the message nowhere in the, in the New Testament Nowhere in the Gospels is follow Jesus and you'll get to heaven. Another benefit that people think comes from following Jesus is that he'll deliver a pain-free life or a problem-free life. And nowhere in the Bible does it say pain-free or problem-free if you follow Jesus. Um, you know, some of us were raised in, in families where there were um, certain things in the church culture, certain things in our church community where we were encouraged to do and we were promised that there would be benefits if we would do this. You know, if you pray this prayer, this is what will happen. If you, um, if you touch this cross, this is what will happen. If you repeat after me, this is what will happen. If you memorize this, this is what will happen. And nowhere in the Bible does it give those kinds of conditions that if you do this and do this and do this, then this is going to be the outcome. You know where that usually works? It usually works in a magic show. If you do this, and then this, and then this, you'll see the outcome, but not in Christianity. And so today we want to look at what Jesus had to say is the result of following him. The result of following him. Not a pain-free life, not a promise of heaven, not to become a better person, but what is the result of following him? And to do that, I want us to look at a passage of scripture, a story in the life of Jesus, kind of early on when he was here on the earth. And there's, a, there's three different groups of people that are around when he's giving these instructions um, that are following Jesus. There's the masses, just people that heard about him. They wanted some free food, and they just showed up. We're kind of familiar with that, where we live. If there's free food, lots of people will show up for free food. Everybody wants something free. Um, you know. Then there was uh, the people that were friends of Jesus. We know of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, people that were with Jesus. And they were with him. They took care of him, opened their homes to him. And then there was the twelve disciples, kind of Jesus' inner circle, um, the individuals that Jesus tapped on the shoulder directly and said, would you come and be my disciple? And these 12 individuals chose to do that. And so this morning we're going to look at a passage where Jesus is talking to these 12 disciples and want to see what he has to say that helps us understand what's the end result of following Jesus. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 10. Um, if you don't have a Bible, our guys have some in the back, and uh, uh, they'll pass those out. We'd love to have you follow along in one of those this morning um, on page 790 in the Bibles they're passing out. Um, or you can follow along on your phone or tablet. If you have new ver version, um, you can go there and turn to the passage. If not, I encourage you to download it. It's a great way to have the Bible with you all the time. Matthew chapter 10. That's where we're going to jump in and in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is with, it says, his 12, and he's given them some instructions. We're just going to go through some of these instructions before we get to the part we want to focus on. So he's telling them what to do. In verse 5, he says, Don't go to the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. 
Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now this is what happened. Jesus says in earlier in verse 1 that he had given them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal disease and sickness. So, I mean, think about this if you're one of the disciples. You kind of said to Jesus, yeah, I'll come with you. So now what? And you go with Jesus, and when they, people run out of food, he provides food. And people are sick, he heals the sick. And now he taps the 12 on the shoulder, and he says, now it's your turn, guys. He said, I'm going to give you what I have, a little bit of what I have, so you can go and do what I do. Um, and he says, I want you to go to the people of Israel. That's the first place this message needs to go, just to the Jews. Eventually go to the Gentiles in the whole world, but right now just to the Jews. And he says, I want you to tell them what I've told you about the kingdom of heaven. That it's what? It's near. It's not here, but it's near. It's coming. It's close. And he tells them, this is what you get to do. All the stuff that you've seen me doing, this is what you get to do. Now, if you're one of the disciples, you're kind of thinking, this is a pretty good deal. I mean, I knew it was a little bit of a sacrifice to give what I was doing my career up to follow Jesus, but now I'll get this stuff I get to do. He goes on in verse 9 for some more, give him some more instructions. Don't get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for your journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Guys, you can remember that when your wives are packing for a trip. Um, whatever town or village you enter... Search there for the same worthy, some worthy person stay at their home until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the house is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return it. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So what is Jesus saying to them? He's saying, I want you to go into a town. Your job is to spread the message of the kingdom of heaven. As you go in this town, you knock on the door, you look for someone that's going to welcome you in. Someone welcomes you in, then you stay there and you keep spreading this message until everyone in the community is heard. Don't take anything extra because I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. Sounds a little bit like what he said to the people of Israel. I'm going to take care of you. Um, and if they don't accept you, go to the next person. And if no one in the town accepts you, then leave that town and that town will face consequences, great consequences for their rejection of me. And so he gives them their instructions, their marching orders, so they know what they're supposed to do, they know where they're supposed to go, to whom they're supposed to go, and how they're supposed to execute their mission. But then the instructions take a little bit of a twist. Look in verse 16. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now, I, I kind of think that was like a, a what? what? Because in the previous breath, he's saying, go. You might find some people that close the door on you, but that's okay. Just keep going. But now he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Now, in case you don't know, sheep and wolves don't sleep in the same, you know, room together. You know, they don't exist together in the same area. Wolves destroy and kill sheep. And so Jesus says to his followers, um, by the way, guys, there's a few more things I have to tell you. This could be life-threatening. This could be life-threatening. So you need to be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. So you need to be kind of crafty and discerning, but gentle and innocent. I don't know about you, but if I'm one of the disciples, I'm like, 
And, and how do you do that when you're about to be killed, Jesus? I, I really don't have any idea about how this works. I, I think if someone's trying to kill me, either my two options are kill them or run for my life. That's my two options. That's all I know. But he says, be innocent and shrewd. Verse 17, be on your guard. You'll be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Well, there's another twist. Not only is my life going to be at risk, but now I'm going to face bodily harm. Flogging was a, a form of torture in those days, is what we would call it today, where a whip um, was, um, was fashioned through strips of rawhide. And at the end of the, the pieces of that whip were pieces of glass and that were tied into the end of that. So when they would slash that whip across someone's back and they would pull it, it would just rip the flesh open. You know, it was the worst possible torture. It's what they did to people in those days. And so now you're one of the disciples and you think, wait a minute, my life is going to be at risk and I'm going to be flogged and beaten with a whip. Verse 18, on my account you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And this really did happen to Jesus' disciples. But when they arrest you, don't worry, and this is what they're not supposed to worry about, what to say or how to say it. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not be worrying about what to say or how to say it if I was captured. <laughs> um, you know, I have this discussion with people sometimes, and they're entering a delicate situation, and they'll say to me, can you help me figure out how to say this? I'm not quite sure how to say it. So I'll try to give them, you know, some language or words that kind of help them articulate it so it would be received well. If my life is at risk, I'm not sure I'm thinking about how do I couch my words or say them gently or graciously. He said that that time you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Okay, so when I'm about to get beat and I have to stand and talk about why I'm doing what I'm doing, God's going to give me the words to say. This actually happened. Read the book of Acts. You have this happen over and over and over again. But again, part of me is thinking, if okay, God, if you're going to give me words when I'm in this situation, could you simply somehow help me avoid the beating? I would like to avoid the beating and the flogging. Can you kind of show up and, and interrupt things there? It's nice that you're going to give me words to say down here, but can you please show up here and spare me? Or maybe just keep me from the whole my life being at risk thing. It gets worse. Verse 21. Brother will be prey brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Your family, the people that are supposed to be closest to you, the ones that are supposed to have your back through thick and thin, they're going to turn you in, and you might die because of that. And then he ends in verse 22. He says, you will be hated by everyone because of me. Everybody's going to hate you. Everybody's going to hate you. Now, again, if you're one of the disciples, think about where you came from in the last 15 verses. I mean, you came from just a few verses ago with Jesus giving you power to cast out demons, to heal people, and you're going to go and spread this incredible message that masses of people are following Jesus. You get to go and spread this message. 
Sounds like an incredible opportunity. But as you go and spread this message, he said, oh, and by the way, there's a little clause in what's going to happen. You're going to put your life at risk. You're going to be beaten within an inch of your life. God's going to give you words to say, by the way, your family might turn you in, likely will turn you in, and you're going to be hated by everybody to boot. Doesn't sound like a very appealing, I'm going to sign up for that. But he said this is what's going to happen. And if you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what took place. Then he goes down in verse 26, and he says this. And he says, So, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. I'm not sure how you do that. If someone's causing physical harm, putting your life at risk, he says, don't be afraid of them. Verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He says it again. He says, don't be afraid of them. And then he introduces this idea, and he talks about this over and over again to try to help us understand why we should not fear those that could do this kind of harm to us. He says, verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. A sparrow is the smallest bird that exists. You can see it there on that branch. It's obviously blown up so you can see it. In those days, it was the least expensive bird that you could purchase. The smallest coin would buy you two of these. But Jesus says, God knows when one of these sparrows falls to the ground. Um, I don't know about you, but if I sit and think about that, I can't quite wrap my mind around it. Um, you know, we were driving up to Maine and uh, a couple of weeks ago on vacation and we had some bikes in the back and all of a sudden I look in the back window and there's white feathers all over and my son was driving behind us he said all of a sudden there was white feathers all over the windshield obviously a bird flew through the spokes of the bike God knew about it um, God knows about all those little things I just can't wrap my mind around that I think to myself sometimes, and forgive my harshness, but why did God care? But he does. And then if that's not enough, look what he says in the next verse. He says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Are all numbered. Now, fortunately, science tells us that um, you know, redheads have around 90,000 hairs on their head, and and uh, brunettes have around 110,000, and blondes, you've got a lot of hair, you know, 150,000 hairs on your head. Um, and, and he says, God has numbered all of them. All of them. All of them. And it almost seems like Jesus needed to take the most um, outlandish examples 
the, the most farthest removed examples that we could even wrap our minds around and says, I want you to know this is how much I care for my creation, the birds that no one really even cares about, other than the cat that's chasing it, and you, and you. And if you ask yourself, what gives me the capacity to not fear in situations like this, it's knowing that there is a God in heaven who knows you and loves you far more than you can ever even imagine or fathom. And the truth is, we're all going to face difficult circumstances. God might not ask you to go through what he said to his disciples they would encounter. Their lives being at risk, physical torture, being turned in by your own family or hated by others. But the, result, the reality is that we will all face difficult times, right? Jesus says, in this world you will, you will have trouble. You will have trouble. He wraps it up in verse 31. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Than many sparrows. And what Jesus is trying to tell his followers here, and I think the reason that it gives us the ability to follow Jesus knowing this is the outcome, is that you are more valuable to him than anything that exists. And that he will never, ever, ever abandon you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because you matter more to me than anything else I've created. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I am always with you. Ask yourself this question. What would my life be like if I woke up tomorrow, if I woke up on Tuesday, and I began every day with this unshakable confidence that God was going to be with me and that God loves me no matter what I face today? No matter what I faced I mean, students, think about that for a moment. What would it be like for you to begin your day with this thought that, that God is going to be with me even if I go and sit in this class with this teacher that I know has it out for me and there's no way I can get a good grade in that class? What is it like for God to be with me when I'm hanging out with my friends and, and um, you know, someone tells friends something I told them in confidence? They gossip. What is it like for God to be with me when I get treated badly on the sports field? Or the coach reams me out for something that someone else did wrong? You know, what's it like for you to be an employee and God to be with you? When you have a challenge to do a job that's in front of you and you're not sure how you're going to get it done in the hours you have to do it. When the expectations are greater than the time that you have to accomplish the task in front of you. Or how about to be a boss when you're trying to make a decision about an employee that's not cutting it. Or you're trying to figure out which direction to take the company that you've been entrusted with. What's it like to know God is with you every day, no matter what? No matter what? 
And not only to know that God is with you, but that God loves you. That God loves you. You know, Jesus kept trying to say this over and over again to his followers. In in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 28, he says, Why are you worrying about your clothes? It's God that clothes the grass of the field here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. There's a story in Mark chapter 4. It's actually in all of the Gospels where Jesus is with his disciples and they're out in a boat. And this is the story when he's in the boat with them. There's another story when he's not in the boat. But this is the story. He's in the boat with them. And the storm comes up. And they wake Jesus up when, he's, when the storm comes up and they said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? They didn't know he was the Messiah. They just knew he was a teacher. Don't you care if we drown? And Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet and be still, and they calmed down. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You see, what Jesus wanted his followers to do is he wanted his followers to have this unshakable confidence in the presence of God and the love of God in their lives that would give them the ability, whatever storm came their way, for them not to live with fear, but for them to live with hope. I don't know about you, but I periodically have the opportunity to spend time with someone who's gone through a very difficult, life-altering experience. And some people, I spend that time with them, and when we talk about what's going on in their lives, I wonder, will they make it? Literally, sometimes. Will their faith survive? And then there's others, when we go through this, experience i talk to them about it and they're honest about their pain and they're honest about the struggle and they're honest about the sorrow or loss or whatever's going on but they have this unshakable faith that in spite of the fact that everything around them is collapsing they have this unshakable faith and confidence in god and i find myself at times wondering what would my faith be like when those things hit me because they'll hit us all They'll hit us all. You know, imagine, I'll take dads, could be dads or moms, but I'll take dads. Imagine, dads, if you're overhearing one of your kids talking to a friend and the friend's kind of going through a difficult time and, and your kid says to him, you know, it's sorry to hear you're going through that, but I know if I went through a tough time like that, my dad would always be there for me. Imagine the pride you would feel in that moment. But then the painful reality that, man, as much as I want to be there all the time for my kids, sometimes I can't. Sometimes geographically I'm removed from them at that moment in time. Uh, what if I was away on a, on a business trip? What if they were away at college? As much as we want to be there with them and we would love to do that, the reality is, is we can't. But God offers far more than that. And he says, are you willing to trust an all-loving, all-powerful God who is always going to be with you and whose love will never leave you alone? You know, there's another benefit that shows up in our lives when we have this unshakable confidence in God. 
instead of our fears. And it's the ability to love people. who maybe don't even deserve to be loved. I mean, what does it take for you to love a spouse that's divorced you? Or a child that's abandoned you? Or the friend that's wounded you? Or parents who rejected you? You know, I honestly believe that if you knew God would never abandon you and will always be with you, it gives you the capacity to love in a different kind of way. John talks about this in 1 John 4, um, 8, when he says this, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I thought for a long time that I had to love perfectly before I would be able to have this, this elimination of fear in my life. But then I've slowly come to see this differently because it's not me being able to love that casts out this fear. It's me receiving the love that God has for me in spite of my sinfulness, in spite of my brokenness, in spite of the fact that I say, God, thank you for this and I want to follow you, but then I turn around in the next breath and do what I want to do and He still loves me. What enables you to pray for those who hate you, mistreat you, and might even persecute you. It's living in the reality of God's unending love for you. If it's any encouragement, John didn't write this when he first met Jesus. He probably wrote it maybe 40 or 50 years after he met Jesus. He was in the boat with those disciples who were scared to death when Jesus calmed the waves. He was with the disciples when they all ran away on the night of his betrayal. It took him a long, long time to sit with and understand and grab hold of and allow the love that God has for him to overwhelm, fill, and consume his heart to give him now the capacity to offer that love to people that are totally undeserving of it. Paul writes about this in the book of Romans. When he says this, he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? What about trouble? How about hard times? Maybe even being persecuted for our faith. Um, you know, there was a group of us a few months uh, last month that were at a, a leadership summit in in Lancaster, and several of the speakers at that summit said to us, they said, "There is a day coming in the not too distant future for people of faith in this country where we are going to experience some level of this that we have never known, and it doesn't matter who's in the White House." at a church in our area that does a free meal for people in our community and gives food away to them. And the organization that provides them the food just sent them a letter and said, you are not permitted to pray or use the name of Christ at all when you distribute this food to these people who are homeless in Denver. 
Pennsylvania. This just happened. So that's not far away. Famine, nakedness, danger or sword, none of that separates us from the love of Christ. And Paul, look what he says. He says, I am convinced, convinced that not even the forces of the spirit world, angels or demons, not even what's happening now or whatever could happen in the future, not any powers, nothing high or deep or anything else in creation can separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus. You see, when we embrace the love that God has for us and we find a way to daily live in that love and daily live in the reality of His presence with us, I believe what Jesus was saying to His followers is it's going to help you to move fear out of your life and give you the ability to follow Him all of your days. All of your days. You say, what's the benefit? What's the payoff of following Jesus? The payoff of following Jesus is an unshakable confidence in the presence of God and the love of God in your life as you choose to follow Him. As I close this morning, I want to ask you to bow your heads and just thank God for His love for His presence. God, some days it's hard to live with the reality that we are loved by the Creator of the universe. And as Paul said, he has this unshakable confidence that nothing can separate him from that love. And it's his knowledge not only of that love, but of the presence of God in his life, constant, daily, everywhere he goes, no matter what he faces that helps him not to be afraid of whatever comes his way. God, I know in my own life recently, as I have felt fear, um, I've realized in some new ways how real it is. And how easily and quickly it can paralyze us, God. But you've offered a different way. You've offered a way that only comes through Jesus. To know and receive and experience His love. And the confidence of His presence. God, as we walk out of this room today... You know what's happening in each person's heart. You know each person's story. You know the things that because of your presence we no longer fear. You know the things that we are battling fear right now. 
God, give us this unshakable confidence that Paul had that nothing can separate us from your love or your presence. May that give us freedom to live and to love and to follow Jesus. In your name we pray.